Hello, welcome to another episode of the Firm Returns podcast. Today we're going to be having a look at the latest write-up I've just done, which is released on the 17th of May, and it was covering Ecora resources. So let's start with the business overview. Ecora Resources, Ecor, is a royalty and streaming company based in London and listed on the London Stock Exchange with a market capitalisation of £300 million at a share price of £1.15. It's actually since dropped a little bit, so it's even even cheaper, or even lower. It also has a secondary listing on the Toronto Stock Exchange in Canada and over-the-counter in the US. So prior to the 5th of October 2022, the company was called Anglo-Pacific Group with the stock ticker APF and changed its name to Ecora Resources to reflect a pivot away from coal, which has historically been its largest source of revenue, to future-facing commodities such as cobalt, nickel and copper. In 2020, the company had two major coal royalties, Kestrel, metallurgical coal, and Narabri, thermal coal. Management made the decision in 2021 to sell the Narabri royalty back to its operator, which was Whitehaven Coal, for a fixed consideration of $21.6 million paid in instalments from the 31st of December 2021 to the 31st of December 2026, with a variable contingent consideration component estimated at $14 million, dependent on future coal prices, production volumes, and mine expansion. In hindsight, this wasn't the best time to transactions, as not only did they recognise a significant loss against the $45 million carrying value of the asset, they also missed the subsequent boom in thermal coal prices. So and then show a graph here taken from the IEA, International Energy Agency, um, showing you how ridiculous the the uh, price of coal from in this case particularly Australia um, has absolutely rocketed up. So uh, yeah they uh, and this was in just as we were coming into 2022 really thankfully they captured the upside in the metallurgical coal price via their kestrel royalty the windfall included an added bonus derived from the unusual nature of the royalty held the company owns a freehold over the over an area of the mine that includes the substratum land this is the rare because the land below the surface is usually retained by the state when a freehold is sold. The result was that when the Queensland government changed the royalty rate to capture more of the record profits being generated by the miners, Ecora also quietly benefited. And I've got a table here um, which came from, I think they put out a RNS regulatory news service announcement um, talking about the change of the royalty rates and um, how it was going to affect them so you and I've taken this from there and uh, rewritten it um, so yeah you can just see just to give you some examples the 
for coal prices below uh, pretty much below 175 Australian dollars there's no no real change um, but once the prices start going above that so let's say in the bracket between 175 and 225 dollars um, per ton the older royalty rate was 15% and then it was up, changed on the 1st of July 2022 to 20% um, and then from 225 to $300 per tonne, it goes from 15% to 30%. So basically for everything above 150 before you, the standard rate was 15%, but now it's it keeps going up in increments. And then from 300 um, and above, it's gone 15%, as I said, to 40%. So massive increase and um, with metallurgical coal prices well in the excess of 300 Australian dollars per tonne in H2 2022 the company captured very substantial upside to be exact Kestrel produced a combined 155 million US dollars across financial year 21 and 22 compared to an expected 32 million dollars had royal had coal prices stayed at the hundred and thirty dollars per ton level seen in the first quarter of financial year twenty one, so an absolutely massive upside and not something that necessarily was uh, clear when you looked back at um, the tight start of the pandemic with all the prices dropping, what have you, and before we knew that this uh, change of royalty rate scheme was going to take place. As alluded to earlier, the company has pivoted to focus on commodities essential to a sustainable energy transition. The centrepiece of this new strategy has been two transformational acquisitions, which completed on the 12th of March 21 and 19th of July 22, respectively. Both were financed with a combination of cash, debt and equity, with the exceptional cash flows from Kestrel contributing substantially to the second acquisition. Kestrel again being the metallurgical coal uh, mining royalty they have. We'll look at the details of these acquisitions a little later on, but I think it would be beneficial at this point to define how a natural resources royalty or stream works. So a royalty is a form of financing whereby the royalty company provides the mine operator with an upfront payment in return for a percentage of the revenue generated from the mine. The royalty is usually restricted to a specific area and as such the holder will only have an interest in the operations that fall within this area. In some cases, e.g. Kestrel, mining operations may move outside the land covered by the royalty and so payments will end. There are two main types of royalty owned by Ocora, net smelter return, or NSR, and gross revenue royalties, GRR. The former subtracts the cost of transporting and refining the mined resources from the top line revenue generated from sales, while the latter is based purely on the gross revenue and doesn't deduct any expenses. NSR royalties are more prevalent in cases where the mined products requires a significant amount of processing before being saleable. 
much like there is a primary and secondary market for equities, royalties can either be purchased directly from the mining operator, primary, or the current owner, secondary. Ecora engages in both types of transactions. A stream is similar to a royalty, but instead of receiving a percentage of revenue, you obtain the right to purchase a percentage of the mine's production at a discounted price. The stream owner is therefore responsible for selling the product and must use a, pro a portion of the proceeds to cover the purchase price and selling costs. So we'll see you later with um, the uh, one of the two major acquisitions. It was a cobalt stream and um, in Canada, and they get to buy the cobalt for 18% of the uh, market price and then capture the 82% difference. Um, so that's just to give you a, 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 a contextual example. So royalty financing offers a number of benefits for mine operators. The first is that it doesn't dilute the ownership of the company. Existing shareholders retain full control of the company and its operations. The second is that royalty payments are entirely variable, unlike traditional debt. There is no fixed, There are no fixed payments to cover even before the mine is operational. The third is that the royalty sits on one specific asset, much like a mortgage on a real estate or a house or whatever, and so there is no liability on the operator's balance sheet. There are also specific advantages to owning royalties for investors, namely inflation protection, diversification, and upside potential. Inflation protection comes from the fact that royalty payments are based on revenue and so insulate you from increases in operational expenses. Obviously in the case of NSR, net smelter return royalties, there is the expenses of the, of the smelting process, um, but you're not this is meaning that it doesn't factor in any of the mining operations expenses, so the cost of actually getting the raw materials out of the ground. Diversification is something specific to royalties. Holders of public equity and debt can also diversify. Sorry, diversification is not something specific to royalties. Holders of public equities and debt can also diversify. It's more an advantage over mine operators who have their funds concentrated in a single project. Royalty holders also benefit from potential upside in the form of mine life extensions and above projection commodity prices. This is something you don't get with traditional debt securities. So yeah, if the mine, if they're able to expand the mine beyond what they originally thought, which is, is quite a common occurrence, um, they switch to a different type of mining, like maybe they start with open pit and that's what all the projections are done, but then they move underground and can continue the mine for another decade or two or whatever. Or, you know, they start using more uh, difficult uh, techniques to uh, to start extracting it beyond the what was initially an easy process of just digging a hole and scraping it off the, the surface effectively. Um, yeah, right, so like, and then of course, yeah, the other aspect here for the upside is commodity prices could be significantly above what you thought when you originally paid for the royalty, as you've seen with like 
with the Kestrel and the coal prices, for instance, when they bought that, paid for that royalty. Um, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was yeah, probably something like a decade before uh, when they originally bought that. They weren't necessarily factoring in that there was going to be an absolutely massive upside and a change in the royalty rate scheme and stuff like that, and uh, just a standard bondholder wouldn't wouldn't have benefited in the same way. So you, you're getting that upside that makes it a little bit like holding equity in that sense. But yeah, again, also similar downside to equity in the sense that if the if the mine does stop producing uh, for whatever reason or it or it never starts, if it's if you buy a development stage royalty over it. Uh, or a royalty over a development stage mine, and then the the financing never comes gets into place, and they never actually start the operation um, unless you've got some other agreements in place, which Acora does for quite a lot of the um, royalty arrangements. Um, but unless you've got something like that in place to get some of your some or all of your money back, um, then you're not necessarily going to get anything. And if the mine has to stop production for during the pandemic or something like that. Um, as happened with some some sites, or they've reduced production because of staff absences and stuff like that. The the royalty holder doesn't necessarily it also suffers a bit there. So there there are it is close it is a closer thing to a equity in some respects. So the market for royalties often becomes buoyant during downturns when traditional financing options such as debt and equity become unavailable or prohibitively expensive. It's quite likely that we're entering such a economic environment, which should increase the number of opportunities available to Ecora. However, this potential tailwind is counterbalanced by increased competition from precious metal mining and royalty companies that are being drawn into the non-precious metal market by the expectation of higher demand and prices. So I actually saw something, um, listened to a quite interesting podcast the other day. Um, I think it was... Brandon Baylow was interviewing Tavi Costa and he made an interesting point that gold is referring to precious metals gold is seen as a as a precious metal and obviously is held um, as an asset on that basis and, uh, and not used in industry because it's prohibitively expensive to do so um, but it's actually if it was abundant it would be an incredibly useful metal in industry and it is used in niche circumstances where um, it can be used as a thin film or whatever kind of st- a gold coating and things like that um, or electronic circuits and so on it's little key components and things but it can't be used in large quantities but if it if it was available in larger quantities it probably would be used maybe in a similar sort of way to the way copper is being used now it just made me think if we do start having copper prices or cobalt prices or whatever rocketing up they could start being seen more as uh as precious metals in it in a way and then that will uh be drawing in a lot of the, pre- the people that are currently interested in buying gold and silver and stuff like that will start wanting to buy copper or cobalt or things like that so just an interesting interesting perspective um and a yeah a new sort of perspective i not really thought about on some of the precious metals how they actually would be very good in, in or they are very good in industrial applications they're just too expensive to use they have to use inferior alternatives 
So let's have a look. So we've got recent acquisitions. So yeah, we're gonna go through these. Just let me have a quick sip first. So first of all is Voices Bay, which is the um, Cobalt stream encounter I just mentioned. So let's go through here. So on the 12th of March, 2021, Ikora acquired a company, holding company with a 70% net interest in a Cobalt stream from the Voices Bay mine in Canada. The initial consideration of the deal was $205.6 million with further con contingent considerations subject to Cobalt prices and production levels over the first five years following closing. The deal was funded using a mix of cash raised from asset sales, debt, and an oversubscribed public share offering. In financial year 2022, $3.3 million was paid in contingent consideration as a result of minimum production and price thresholds being achieved in H221 and H122. The mine is in the process of transitioning from open pit to underground mining and as such there is expected to be a period of time in which volumes reduce while the open pit is depleted and the underground operations come online. Correspondingly, the contingent consideration recognised on the balance sheet has been reduced to nil as the minimum production and price thresholds are not expected to be achieved. The stream entitles Ikora to 22.8%. 82% of all cobalt production from both the open pits and underground mining operations, stepping down to 11.41% once 7,600 tonnes of finished cobalt has been delivered. From the deal closing to the 31st of December 2022, a total of 900 tonnes had been delivered. Ikora pays 18% of an industry cobalt reference price prevailing on the date of delivery increasing to 22% once $300 million, the upfront amount paid for the stream by its original holder in net cobalt has been received by the company. To clarify, when the company receives a delivery of cobalt, 82% of its value is credited against the remaining balance. The accumulated credit as of 31st of December 2022 was $46 million, meaning a further $254 million needs to be delivered before the rate increases. So it's going to be staying at 18% for quite a while. The total deliveries of finished cobalt are expected to be 15.5 megapounds or million pounds, which is equivalent to approximately 7,000 tons, which equates to a mine life ending 2035. Um, so yeah, you notice that we've said that the amount of cobalt that Ikora is entitled to steps down from 22.82% to 11.41% when, so effectively halves, when 7,600 tonnes of finished cobalt has been delivered. So the estimated total deliveries of finished cobalt are expected to be less than that at 7,000 tonnes. So um, setting aside any mine life extension or anything like that uh, we expect we'd expect to to be getting that 22.82 percent entitlement for the whole duration of the of the royalty or the mine life and the more royalty agreement 
So um, yeah, this figure is purely based on the current reserves and doesn't account for the potential for further mine life extensions. The metal stream asset is carried at cost on the balance sheet and depleted each year on a units of production basis. In financial year 22, the group received 0.59 megapounds compared to financial year 2021, 0.65 megapounds of cobalt, resulting in a depletion charge of three of 6.5 million dollars. Oh, and it which in 2021 was 7.3 million dollars. So yeah, use it's it can get a bit confusing with all the changes between tons and pounds, which I tried to list them out here, but um, yeah, the price of cobalt is normally quoted in pounds, which is why they do the mega pounds thing. Um, but then, uh, yeah, tons is also used at various points in uh, in the documentation and so on for these agreements. So uh, yeah, you have to fluidly switch between the two a bit. Um, yeah, so something to we'll get onto this a bit later, but. Something to note here is the mention of it being carried at cost on the balance sheet. That means that if there is any kind of future mine life extension, which the management, having visited the site a number of times, and most recently, um, the tail end of last year, I think, uh, they seem to be increasingly convinced that there will be um, the operator of the mine, which is Vale. Um, seems to think that there there will be some potential extension uh, beyond what they've currently predicted uh, in the initial agreement um, but also any kind of if we if we have the long-term price of cobalt is sees an uplift uh, analyst expectations of that it receives an uplift uplift uh, sorry uplift and um, that increases the actual value of how much they're going to get out from the cobalt sales. Any of those kind of facts going, they're not going to be reflected on the balance sheet. So because it's carried at cost, so you don't see any of those kind of. It's not carried at fair value. And it's actually um, you'll see it later on metal streams because I don't. They obviously with the standards of accounting standards, they don't really have uh, specific classifications for some of these kind of more obscure financial agreements and arrangements and so on so royalties and streams things like that so they kind of end up getting lumped into other categories so a lot of royalties get lumped into the intangible assets category and in this case streams get lumped into um property plant and equipment pp and e so uh yeah it's just seen as and that's because in the case of a stream you're actually having to take inventory of the the items and and so it, it's slightly different even though the net effect is to be very similar to a royalty you kind of there's actually the way it's recognized on accounting basis um it's a little different it's seen as an actual sort of physical item that gets depleted over over time um right so like so the the next acquisition that was uh was the royal a royalty portfolio from South Thirty Two. So let's have a look at that. So on the nineteenth of July, twenty twenty two, Ecora acquired a portfolio of royalties over advanced stage, sorry, advanced development stage, copper and nickel projects from South Thirty Two Royalty Investments Pty Ltd, 
South 32 for a fixed consideration of $185 million with a further contingent consideration of up to $15 million. The fixed consideration consisted of a combination of $102.6 million in cash and $82.4 million in equity. Um, yeah, we'll get on to that in a second, but yeah, just to mention, I'm not sure I'm really going to deal with it, but the equity component was actually issued directly to South 82 and they've retained it and I think they now hold 16% of the, the the largest shareholder of the company with 16% ownership of the core resources now. Um, oh yeah, 16.9% is that I've written. So yeah, they've uh, they've actually got a meaningful stake now in 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 Acora from this this arrangement, which is a interesting development. Yeah, it's kind of good to have a this is a a very large company holding a stake here, so it's quite quite a nice thing to have a, a large uh, operator. So um, yeah, and we'll get on to it. Well, this yeah, I'll, I'll, as you remember, just read it. Initial cash payment of $47.6 million was made on completion of the transaction with the remaining $55 million being split into six equal quarterly payments that started in October 2022. The equity component is calculated from the issuance of $43,622,091 ordinary shares at a price of £1.54 per share, so quite a bit higher than than what the share price is now and equates to approximately 16.9% of the company. The contingent consideration is payable subject to future nickel prices and minimum production levels and as at 31st of December 2022 was held on the balance sheet as a liability with fair value of $10 million. Yep. Um, so the, I think I'll, I might get onto this a bit later, but it's um, an interesting point here is that the reason that they've split the cash into initial payment and then the fifty-five million dollars after that is they've sort of they've timed it to coincide with the payments from Kestrel, future payments. So they've actually as Kestrel is running off, um, and we'll get onto. Kestrel as an asset a bit later on. Um, I think it has a, well, maybe I don't go any further, but yeah, the Kestrel has basically is going to, it's going to die off in 2026, I think is the end of the mine, or maybe 2025. So they've just got a couple more years and they've, the, the actual production is going to be pretty low compared to, well, I mean, I think we had peak production with last year effectively, and it's going to run off from here as, as it moves outside the our uh, royalty area, of course, royalty area. So, um, yeah, it's uh, as that's running down and getting those cash flows in, those quarterly cash flows, they've timed the payments to South 32 to coincide with those. So, uh, minimum kind of use of the revolving credit facility is, is required for this, uh, for those payments. So, um, let's have a look. So the two main assets acquired in the transaction were a 2% NSR nickel, NSR again remember is net smelter return, 
um, royalties. So a two percent NSR nickel copper royalty over the West Musgrave project in Australia, and a two percent NSR copper cobalt royalty over the Santo Domingo project in Chile, or Chile. At the time of the acquisition, the West Musgrave mine was owned and operated by OZ Minerals, but has since been sold to BHP. So um, BHP being the absolute colossal uh, miner, so uh, yeah, it's, it's quite. The management was quite happy about that, having a a big player that's really trying to move into the copper space. So very motivated to get the mine producing. Um, so yeah, Santo Domingo is owned and operated by Capstone Copper, a leading producer, a leading copper producer operating in the Americas with several other mines in the region. And we'll get on to this later, but um, Capstone Copper also is the operator and owner of a another mine that we have a royalty over, or Ecora has a royalty over, um, which I believe was Mantos Blancos. So, uh, but yeah, we'll get to that a bit later. Yeah, I can tell us Right, um, let's have a look. So West Musgrave is the further developed of the two projects with first production targeted for H2 2025. The mine's average annual production is expected to be approximately 35 kilotons of nickel and 41 kilotons of copper over the first five years of production, falling to 27 kilotons of nickel and 33 kilotons of copper thereafter, with a, an expected mine life of over 24 years. Using long-term consensus forecasts for copper and nickel prices, which are below the prices seen in uh, seen last year, um, this would equate to between $10 million to $15 million in annual royalty payments so yeah just to bear in mind again that copper is ex and uh, nickel are expected to but from the IEA predictions if we do actually go ahead with the energy transition are expected to go up at least two to three times in price from here so um and, and even more I think for nickel if but um nickel potentially is something that could be is easier to get around maybe they could change the battery technologies and stuff like that to avoid it. there potentially so much there but copper is much more difficult to replace in that respect at scale so um, yeah copper is potentially the, the going to be a real driver of that you could potentially seeing it a lot higher than than what they're predicting there so so yeah but 10 to 15 million dollars per year uh, in in royalty payments is kind of the expectation using the analyst consensus long-term forecast which is basically an average of what it's historically been and is quite significantly below even what we saw last year in terms of prices which weren't um there were some spikes particularly in nickel and stuff like that but weren't particularly high compared to the what the actual predictions for you know potential forecast would be if the energy transition plays out as predicted or as stated by various governments. So um, Santo Domingo is an earlier stage, 
is in an earlier stage of development, with production expected to come online in the second half of this decade. So 2025 to 2030, something like that, in that sort of that region. When it does so, though, the average annual production of copper is expected to be 63.5 kilotons and cobalt is 4.7 kilotons. The miner is expected to have an 18-year life, but Ikora's royalty area will only be mined for the first six or seven years, according to current plans, with mining potentially returning in year 14. In the years of production, the royalty is expected to generate between 20 and $35 million annually. So, yeah, putting those two together, um, you're looking at between 30 and $50 million a year and one of those is going to be, you know, the 10 or 15 million dollars of that is going to be going for 24 years, and the other one's going to be going for six or seven years, plus potentially a little bit later, further out, um, another three or four years. But yeah, and bearing in mind that, again, prices being pretty conservative predictions rather than, uh, or basically historical averages rather than. What potentially could be the upside so yeah lots of exposure and and a nice thing actually about these being development stages even though that first of all you can get them a bit cheaper because they're development stage there is an element of risk maybe the mine doesn't come online um or doesn't actually be in production but both of them have got very competent and well-financed operators so it's the chances are uh and well motivated in good jurisdictions and what have you um, so it's definitely uh, the probabilities are in your favor that they will they will come online um, but uh, an advantage of getting having them not producing yet is that we can maybe wait a few years to get through maybe initial recession period or some other kind of thing with might be we might be heading our way wait that out and then when they do come online we'll be uh, hopefully in this full swing of the energy transition if it occurs but yeah we'll get onto all that stuff a bit later on so um so bundled in with these two major royalties with a 1.5 percent realized value royalty over the nifty copper project in the eastern in the northeastern pilbara region of western australia nifty is a mine restart project owned and operated by cyprian metals limited with an expected mine life of six years Ecora is only estimated to start receiving royalty payments in the second or third year of production, and the project is still dependent on Cyprian raising the required funding. So yeah, not much, um, not a particularly big component, the Nifty, and there's also another one, Carlotta, which we get onto later, but that's just producing in the hundreds of thousands in terms of contributions. Um, so yeah, pretty insignificant component, but um, yeah, we'll get to that a bit later. So one final thing to mention is that there is a 10 million Australian dollar payment expected from the West Musgrave mine once production starts, in addition to the royalty payments. So the rest of the portfolio. So I'll now briefly cover each of the remaining portfolio assets, which can be divided into three categories, producing, development, and early stage. As the name suggests, producing assets are operational mines already providing royalty payments to the company. Development stage assets are those where production is expected to start in the short to medium term, and early stage assets are those where production remains a long way off. 
due to the increased risk the further away a product is from production. The development of, uh, sorry, the development and early stage assets command a lower valuation than those currently producing, accounting for, accounted for by adjusting the discount rate and the discount rate used in the fair value calculation of the royalty. This also means that when a development stage asset begins production, the fair value appreciates significantly. But as I mentioned, uh, this fair value isn't necessarily reflected on the balance sheet because a lot of them are recognized at cost. Or carried at cost. Management looks to strike a balance between acquiring development stage royalties at attractive prices and producing royalties with greater certainty of revenues but potentially lower returns. They've moved away from investing in early stage projects due to the much larger degree of speculation involved, but there's still a few in the portfolio. So let's have a look at the uh, producing assets first. So Mantos Blancos is the first one. In 2019, Nicora acquired a 5. Uh, sorry, a 1.525% NSR royalty over the Mantos Blancos copper mine in Chile for 50 points $3 million. This royalty relates only to the copper produced on the mine by the mine and does not include any of the byproducts. The mine is owned and operated by Capstone Copper, the same company that owns and runs Santo Domingo, and its expected mine life ends in 2038. Royalty payments for 2022 totaled $6 million, with the mine producing 48.8 kilotons of copper during the year. Production guidance for 2023 is between 55 kilotons and 63 kilotons following a project completed in 2022 to expand the throughput of the mine's refining facilities. Uh, yeah, just one thing I wanted to mention actually about the, um, just remind me, the Santo Domingo one, there's actually a the reason it's potentially getting a little um they're still in the in the planning sort of phase for the development uh, which is why it's a bit further out but they've got a potential very substantial efficiency that could be saving some hundreds of millions of dollars a year of you combining some of the supporting facilities for the mine with a local project they also own um so that's another advantage of having a an operator that's fairly big and has a number of projects in the country um so yeah they're already they're going to be able to be making use of some of those other facilities there so they're planning some stuff together to to work out how they're going to combine the operations of those two mines effectively um so that's that's sort of where we're at with that um so uh then we have maracas mention so ukora owns a two percent NSR royalty on all mineral products sold from the Maracas Mansion mine in Brazil, which largely consists of vanadium oxide. The mine is owned and operated by the Tier Sex Toronto Stock Exchange, listed Largo Resources Limited, Largo, and has an expected mine life ending in 2041. In 2022, the mine produced 10.4 kilotons of vanadium oxide, generating $3.6 million in revenue for Ecora. Production guidance for 2023 is 11 to 12 kilotons. 
So next we've got a pretty interesting one, which is McLean Lake. Uh, sorry, the McLean Lake Mill. So in 2017, Acora entered into a 43.5 million Canadian dollar financing and streaming agreement with Denison Mines Incorporated. Denison. Denison has a 22.5% interest in the McLean Lake Mill in Canada, which processes uranium from the Cigar Lake mine. The toll revenue earned by Denison is linked to the throughput of uranium and is unaffected by movements in the uranium price. The financing component consisted of a 13-year, 40.8 million Canadian dollar loan, bearing interest at a rate of 10% per annum. The loan also has an added mechanism of principal repayment slash interest capitalization determined by the level of toll revenue. In periods where the revenue exceeds the interest payment, the balance is received by Acora as a repayment of principal. Conversely, in periods where the revenue is less than the interest payment, the interest will capitalize and be paid out of cash flows in the following period. On maturity, the outstanding loan balance is payable regardless of the cash generated from the toll. In 2022, Ecora received $5 million in interest and principal repayments from Denison. In addition to the loan, Ecora also made a payment of $2.7 million Canadian dollars to acquire all future toll receipts after the first 215 megapounds of throughput starting 1st of July 2016 to uh, to acquire all future sorry yeah this will be dependent on the life of the Cigar Lake mine which is estimated to be 2037 and management estimates I'm sorry management estimates the probability of throughput exceeding this figure so the 215 megapounds at 60%. After applying this probability to the estimated future cash flows, the stream is valued at $3.4 million. And that's US dollars, which is the uh, functional currency of the company, Ecora. So next we've got Labrador Iron Ore Royalty Corporation, or LIOC. Ecora owns a 1.6% equity stake in LIOC, a Toronto-listed company which holds both a royalty and equity interest in the Iron Ore Company of Canada, IOC, a producer of high-quality iron ore pellets used in the production of low-carbon steel. LIOC receives revenue from its 7% gross revenue royalty, along with dividend income from its equity stake. Since LIOC is effectively a pass-through vehicle, Ecora accounts for the holding as part of as part ownership of the IOC royalty, which has an estimated life ending in 2045. Ecora's equity stake used to be much higher at approximately 5.5% rather than the current 1.6%, but it sold 2,510,700 shares in Q1 financial year 21 for circa sorry not circa for 82.4 million Canadian dollars. See for Canadian dollars, not see for circa. To fund the Voices Bay acquisition. This proved to be opportune timing as the valuation was boosted by elevated iron ore prices, resulting in a 
19.2 million Canadian dollar capital gain on sale. In 2022, Ecora received 3.1 Canadian dollars per share in dividends from Lyoc, equating to a total of 3.2 million Canadian dollars, equivalent to uh, 2.5 million US dollars on its shareholding. This is 48% less than the previous year, which was 6 Canadian dollars per share, due to iron ore prices softening in 2022 versus 2021. So yeah, I could say opportune timing there with the sale. So they did better with that that sale than with the Narabri one. Let's have a quick sip. But it probably uh, almost exactly offsets the, the difference. Certainly on the balance sheet price. So uh, the next one is EVBC. Ecora has a 2.5% NSR royalty over the EVBC gold, copper and silver mine located in northern Spain. The mine is owned and operated by TSC-listed Orvana Minerals Corp. Orvana. And is estimated to... That might be TSX, I might have missed another and is estimated to be fully depleted in 2026. In 2022, the royalty earned $2.8 million, but unfortunately, Orvana has been struggling to make this payment due to margin pressure, so Okora has been in discussions with them to defer payment of the H2 2022 and possibly 2023 royalty. It's uncertain how and when these payments will be recovered. So the next one is 4 Mile. So Ecora has a 1% NSR royalty over the 4 Mile uranium mine in South Australia. The mine is operated by Quasar Resources Pty Ltd. Quasar and has an estimated end of life in 2029. This is another asset with complications as Ecora has been in a legal dispute with Quasar over the level of charges being applied against the royalty. In April 2022, Ecora received a favourable decision from the courts, resulting in a payment of approximately six million Australian dollars. However, Quasar has subsequently appealed the judgment, and so the payment is being held on the balance sheet as a deferred income liability until the result of the appeal is known, which is expected to be second half of 2023, so this year. Carlotta. So this is the one we mentioned earlier. Finally, for the producing royalties, we have Carlotta, which came as part of the royalty portfolio acquired from South32. Ecora owns a 5% NSR royalty over the Carlotta copper project in the US. Revenues from this royalty are minimal, totaling just $0.2 million in 2022, and production is expected to cease in late 2024 or 2025. Right, so let's have a look at development stage ones that we haven't mentioned already. So, PoE. In 2017, Ecora acquired a 1% GRR over the PoE Nickel Cobalt project in Brazil, owned by Brazilian Nickel, for $2 million. This rate increased to 1.25% after Pacific milestones were not achieved 
by the 31st of December 2019. As part of the acquisition agreement, Ecora has the option to increase the royalty to 4.25% in exchange for the payment of $70 million. Subject to the mine passing certain development milestones. Management has ensured that it has the funding available through a credit facility should the option arise. The opportunity is quite promising as a 4.25% GRR would translate to between 17.5 million and 22.5 million dollars in revenue per annum at current nickel prices. Construction of the mine is expected to begin either in late 2023 or early 2024, subject to the operator securing the required funding and the subsequent mine life is estimated to be approximately 18 years. So um, I believe Brazilian Brazilian Nickel is actually a, a UK company, uh, just for a bit of extra context there. So yeah, but that is quite a promising one, with 18 years of life there and that could be producing, um, that's a, a really crazy return if you could put down effectively $72 million in total payment and get 17 and a half to 22 and a half. So let's just split the middle say $20 million a year. Returns for 18 years is pretty, pretty nice. Um, and yeah, that's not factoring any kind of upside or from price appreciation or mine life extension. Incoa. In 2020, Ecora, in partnership with Orion Mineral Royalty Fund, LP, Orion, entered into a financing agreement with Incoa Performance Minerals, LLC, Incoa, to fund the construction of a calcium carbonate mine in the Dominican Republic and a processing facility in Mobile, Alabama. Orion will produce, sorry, Orion will provide the initial tranche of funding to bring the project into production, at which point Ecora will provide a second tranche of funding totaling $20 million in return for a 1.23% gross revenue royalty over the mine and processing facility. This second capital injection will be used by Incoa to bring its product to market. The 1.23% GRR is expected to generate $1.75 to $2 million per annum in cash flow over the first 10 years and $2.75 to $3 million per annum thereafter, with the mine expected to be producing for at least 30 years based on current reserves and possibly 100 plus years via a mine life extension project. So, yeah, I think even the 30 years would be, uh, would be good enough. But 100 plus, wow. Construction of the mine, originally expected to be completed in 2021, has unfortunately been delayed by the pandemic, of course, and current guidance is expect is that production won't begin until at least 2024. The risk to Ecora is low, however, due to the provision of funding being conditional on production commencing. So yeah, we haven't actually, Ecora hasn't actually paid any of the $20 million yet, so there's no risk there just uh, sitting that just just upside really just potential upside if it if it does start production we've made the payment and then um, 
yeah get the get the returns so yeah nice uh, this is one of the ones where it's uh i believe on the balance sheet it will be recognized as a as a financial instrument because it has this it hasn't actually the payment is is conditional so anything where there's like a bit of a conditional component it's recognized as a financial instrument rather than an intangible asset so then it, it does have a fair value that oscillates and so on. So as mentioned earlier, the company owns a number of royalties over early stage projects, some of which show promise. I won't cover them here, however, for the sake of conciseness. So let's have another quick sip. Right, so I now have a section which I think is quite helpful um, going through the accounting classification. So I've mentioned a few of them as I've been going through, but yeah, some go give them proper definitions and uh, some examples and so on here because um, it does get quite complex trying to read through the balance sheet and um, and work out how these different or even just looking through the royalty stuff in the in the strategic report section at the front and some stuff like that to um, try and work out how to account for these different things and and what's the actual true value of the assets and compared to what are they held on the balance sheet with and all this kind of stuff so yeah hopefully this section will be useful so let's go so as we've seen the company's portfolio contains a diverse mix of assets with a variety of different characteristics Consequently, the accounting classifications can get a little complex, so a brief explanation of each will probably prove helpful. Royalty and tangible assets. Simple vanilla royalties are economically similar to holding a direct interest in the underlying mineral asset, and as such are classified as intangible assets carried at cost less accumulated amortization and impairment. The royalty income is recognized as revenue in the income statement. The intangibility comes from the fact that the company does not actually own the mineral assets themselves, but rather a percentage of the revenue generated from their sale, and thus depends on the performance of the operator. Examples include Mantas Blancos, Maracas Mention, Four Mile, Santo Domingo and West Musgrave. Financial, sorry, Royalty Financial Instruments where additional protections are added to a royalty arrangement, the asset is recognized as a financial instrument instead of an intangible asset. These protections can take the form of penalties for missing performance milestones, minimum payment terms, interest provisions, or mechanisms for conversion into equity of the operator. ECORA typically requires these kind of additional protections when the risk of the vanilla royalty is deemed too high, but management still sees significant opportunity in exposure to the underlying resource. The asset is recognized at fair value on the balance sheet and movements in fair value are recognized in the income statement with the exception of LIORC where fair value movements are taken through other comprehensive income. Royalty income is not recognized as revenue in the income statement and re instead reduces the fair value of the asset. The only exception to this rule is for dividends received from LIORC, which are included in royalty-related revenue in the income statement. This treatment of royalty income does somewhat distort the earnings of the company, 
which is why they separately provide portfolio contribution figures. So examples include EVBC, McLean, McLean Lake, which is a Denison mine, Denison loan, POE, and Lyoc. So POE because it's got that conditional payment to, or option to pay the $70 million as well. And, uh, yeah, and Lyoc. So the next one is investment property. So this category applies almost exclusively to Kestrel, where Ikora owns the substratum land and thus the mineral assets directly. In practice though, the commercial terms are very similar to a vanilla royalty. The asset is carried at fair value on the balance sheet and movements in fair value are recognized in the income statement. As and we'll see there's some adjustment they give some adjusted figures later to try and remove these uh, fair value movements which are sort of artificially boost the income so royalty income or artificially depress it royalty income is recognized as revenue in the income statement just like a vanilla royalty so yeah the, the example for this is Kestrel so finally we have property plant and equipment so metal streams, which are being, which, while being similar in many respects to a royalty, are recognised as PP&E due to the fact that the company receives physical delivery of the underlying commodity and bears the associated inventory risk prior to sale. They are carried at cost-less accumulated depletion, calculate on a systematic basis using units of production, and any impairment provision. Metal stream sales are recognized as revenue in the income statement along with the accompanying cost of sales. So here the example is Foyze's Bay. Right, so let's have a look at the some of the actual financials for the company. So start off with income, and we're going to have a look first at those things I mentioned, the portfolio contribution and adjusted earnings. So as mentioned in the section above, the accounting treatment of royalties recognized as financial instruments removes their royalty payments from the income statement. To give a more accurate picture, management provides a, a breakdown of portfolio contributions as shown below. So yeah, we can see that um, here in this little table I've provided, um, for the total portfolio contribution of $143.2 million um, in 2022, uh, there was uh, only $141.8 million of this was seen on the income statement and then the payments from EVBC and the principal repayment from the Denison loans uh, was excluded so there's an extra sort of 5.7 yeah 5.7 uh, million dollars here that would have been missed so um, fairly fairly small in this year when we have the Kestrel providing uh, a very substantial 107.2 million dollars kind of dwarfs everything else but it, in, a, in a more normal year it would have would have been a a modest impact, sort of definitely something like 
10 to 15 percent difference something like that so let's have a look so Kestrel made an outsized contribution due to peak production coinciding with record coal prices and a favorable change in royalty rates if coal prices remain close to their current levels we could expect a couple more years of above average returns even as the operations begin moving into the company's royal sorry begin moving out of the company's royalty area this expectation is reflected in the fair value calculated at year end 2022 of 106.7 million dollars versus 2021 of 84.5 million dollars so yeah this is what i was mentioning about because kestrel being recognized as a property um is held at fair value and so there are, can be adjusted year to year as they change expectations of what the future cash flows will be and in this case it was given an uplift and this uplift will have been recognized in the income statement um yeah but not in the not in the portfolio contribution here So let's look. Um, between 2017 and 2021, Kestrel has made an average portfolio contribution of approximately $42 million, which Cora has been working to replace with other assets. Taking Kestrel's contribution away, you can see that they're not far off achieving this, bearing in mind that Voices, the Voices Bay stream has not thus far been running at full capacity. So yeah, if you add up all the other payments, we're kind of getting close it's above 30 um heading towards the sort of 40 uh, million 40 to yeah heading towards the 40 million dollar mark for what the portfolio is sort of producing currently just the producing royalties without orchestral um no interestingly management seems to have this a higher figure of something like 55 million dollars going forward so i'm guessing that's accounting for higher volumes um from voices bay and maybe some of the other mines than that are well the voice bay particularly as it's transitioning and ramping up the production of the underground mine um so let's have a look so at the time of the South 32 royalty acquisition, management produced a useful graphic that illustrates the effect of past and present acquisitions on the gross trajectory of annual revenues. Using analyst consensus long-term commodity price forecasts, there is a realistic path to consistent annual revenues in excess of $100 million. That's without factoring in any upside from structural macroeconomic trends. So yeah, just to uh, have a look here. This is a, a great graphic. I'd recommend going to the right and have a look at this, or um, yeah, or having a look in there if you can find it on their um, on the company website as well in the presentations. So yeah, you can see the current portfolio. You can see what they illustrate here. What Kestrel's previously done between 2017 and 2021, the average has been the 42 million dollar figure that I mentioned, and then with the estimated portfolio contributions revenues from uh, the rest of the portfolio excluding Kestrel from 2022 to 2030 using these consensus 
long-term commodity price forecast from analysts. Um, the estimated figure is approximately 55 million US dollars. That's currently what the portfolio could do between now and 2030. But then if you add in POE and NCOA, so the um, POE being the op the optional the nickel cobalt project um, in Brazil that we can uh, Cora can put contribute an extra seventy million dollars to if they would choose um, could be producing between fifteen that combined with Incoa which is the uh, calcium carbon I believe yeah. Um, that could those two together using the analyst consensus long-term prices again 15 to 20 million dollars but if you look at what it actually it was quite a bit more than this if you use the first half of h20 uh, of 2022 average pricing so this will illustrate the already just the upside just well, how, how conservative these analyst forecasts are compared to what sort of recent prices have been and potential future prices and then they show illustrate again on top of that what the uh, what we're going to potentially get from the uh, South 32 royalty acquisitions of the West Musgrave and Santo Domingo um, which is another 30 to 50 million US dollars a year um, using those analyst consensus long-term price forecast again uh, but then if and then obviously this is only for the years where they're both producing but um because the santo domingo's has got a limited production range of something like six to to eight years and then and maybe another three or four years later on but then the west musgrove being much simpler in the period that they're both producing you've got another that's 30 to 50 million dollars potential but then again they've illustrated what the actual if it was just using the prices seen in the first half of 2022 it's even it's substantially higher than that even um, and then again that could be illustrative of what the prices might do going forward and it's shown you how conservative the the forecasts are they're integrated into those expected portfolio contributions that they've stated and what they've got kind of incorporated into the the amount they paid for them uh, for the royalties in, in, in the amount that they yeah the proceeds they provided and the cost they recognize on the balance sheet for them so in addition to portfolio contribution management also uses an adjusted earnings figure to gauge performance which came in at 87.9 million dollars this is 2021 it was 52.3 million dollars this factors in operating expenses, finance and foreign exchange costs, and taxes, as shown below. So yeah, this is um, another one. So it includes the same, the royalty and stream-related revenue of $141.8 million, still this, exactly the same as the portfolio contribution. Then you've got, um, it adds in the other components that are outside of it, like the EVBC um, and so on and then it also takes off all the expenses and 
it ex uh, excludes movements in uh, so yeah th this is taking from that portfolio contribution figure so it just basically takes off all the expenses to get you down to the 87.9 um, million dollars but another way you could uh, arrive at this figure is by taking the the net profit and accounting for some of the uh, t taking away some of the fair foul, uh, yeah, reversing some of the fair value movements. So, like the, in this case, Kestrel's the main one that stands out, but then also some of the financial instrument ones that are also carried at fair value. So, which is why it's actually lower than what you'll see as being the net profit. So, I think I'm going to mention this now. Um, but yeah, this adjusted earnings per share figure equated. Uh, adjusted earnings figure equated to an adjusted earnings per share of 37.6 cents on well it would be about something like 150 at uh, one pound 50 sorry one dollar 50 share price something like that um so pretty pretty good earnings yield but obviously exceptional revenues from the uh from kestrel this year Often you can cynically say that adjusted earnings figures are used to flatter the results, but in this case, adjusted earnings are actually lower than the reported RFRS profit of $94.6 million. This is largely because it removes the revaluation gain from the Kestrel royalty. As I've just mentioned. So let's move on to have a look at the actual income statement. Uh, rather, which is obviously IFRS standard, rather than um, additional alternative performance measures. So the top line royalty and metal stream reven related revenue came in at 141.87 million dollars, compared to financial year 2021 of 85.295 million dollars from which is subtracted metal stream cost of sales of $4.265 million, amortization and depletion of royalties and streams of $9.351 million, and operating expenses of $10.849 million, to give an operating profit of $117.405 million, compared to financial year 21 of 5566 million dollars from this figure is subtracted 4.083 million dollars for impairment of royalty intangible assets 1.373 million dollars for revaluation of royalty financial instruments 6.101 million dollars for net finance costs and 1.593 million dollars for foreign exchange losses set against additions of $27.833 million for revaluation of coal royalties, aka Kestrel, and $3.356 million for other income to arrive at a profit before tax of $135.444 million compared to financial year 21 of $54.639 million. Subtracting current and deferred income tax charges of 
4.47 million dollars and 6.337 million dollars respectively gives us the net profit of 94.637 million dollars compared to financial year 21 of 37.476 million dollars so yeah it's a pretty high tax charge on the uh, on mining there's a one one downside to the industry compared to something like uh, shipping or something like that which uh, I'm also invested in a written up a shipping company where because they're based they basically base all the ships as special purpose instruments and the and the company is uh, actually based in uh, well the company's based in Guernsey but they're normally all the ships are recognized um, in like Panama and other places where there's zero tax so uh, you basically don't end up paying any tax on your revenues which is quite nice but in mining because they're physically in these countries they normally have pretty high charge I think like Australia charges something like 30% tax and it's probably even higher and I know for like oil and stuff like that it's a lot higher in the UK um, and also oil and gas and so on so yeah the physical assets normally pretty high tax one downside of them so from these profit figures we can calculate the operating and net profit margins as 82.8% and 66.7% respectively financial compared to financial year um, 2021 of 63 so 65.3% and 43.9% the operating costs are largely fixed so you can see some operational leverage at play here when comparing margins to the prior year I think it's about operating costs about 10 million dollars yeah operating expenses 10.849 million dollars uh, and that was pretty much the same in the previous year even though the revenues were lower um, I'm guessing some of that will incorporate like uh, acquisition expenses and stuff so a little bit higher than in previous periods I think um, but yeah the last couple of years they've had fairly major acquisition expenses which I guess will be incorporated into the operating expenses it could be incorporated in the acquisition process yeah I'm not, not entirely sure now but I know in previous periods they have had lower operating expenses um, let's have a look so looking at revenue and net income over time you can see that they have for the most part followed the cycles of the commodity sector the net income is somewhat distorted by movements in net in asset valuations and impairments so it doesn't necessarily reflect the underlying earning power of the company so we've got a graph here yeah showing the revenues have been kind of uh, ramped up into sort of like the time of the well, there was a big commodity boom from the early 2000s to sort of 2010 11 and it kind of comes crashing down a bit to a trough and then ramps back up again and uh, yeah have to see yeah the, the trough was sort of until 2016 2017 was starting to go up again um, but yeah they yeah, I'll mention that in a second about the asset composition, maybe change things. But then with the the net income, there actually were some negative years in sort of 2013 to 2015. So yeah, it was um 
yeah, you did actually see some. It did see actually go negative. There was also another negative year in twenty twenty, I think. Yeah, as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. So another thing um, to mention for the operating expense. Actually, another thing that that could be is uh, I think maybe included in that is the no, no, no. MetaStream cost of sales is is separate. Yeah, it can't be that. Sorry. Let's continue. Um, so one thing that should be emphasized is the change in asset composition over this 20-year period. The company has moved from a heavy exposure to coal and iron ore to a mix of metals, including copper, cobalt and nickel, that will be instrumental to an energy transition. The legacy assets are likely to be fully depleted before any cyclical fall is seen in their values, and Ecora is positioned to ride the new structural growth trend. This, of course, relies on the energy transition occurring, which in the balance of probabilities seems likely, even if the pace is somewhat slower than anticipated. Let's have a quick drink. Yeah. Oh, I apologise, this is going to be a... This is going to be a long one. I think the, the report worked out to be about six and a half thousand words which is by far the longest one I've done uh, the other ones have been around about 5,000 so it's a bit a bit more but yeah quite a lot to say uh, that's right let's have a look at the balance sheet so at the 31st of December 2022 Ecora had assets totaling 678,936,000 uh, compared to 520,459,000 which can be divided into non-current and current assets of 651,520,000 and 27,416,000 respectively. Largest non-current asset com components are royalty and exploration intangible assets of 252,549,000 so Metal streams of 164,755,000, coal royalties of 106,669,000, and royalty financial instruments of 43,880,000. So you can see those first two, the royalty and exploration intangible assets and metal streams, are both carried at cost and will not fluctuate will not move reflect any kind of movement in the actual fair value of the assets so even as they transition from development stage to producing there will be no uplift in the value recognized on the balance sheet um, so yeah potentially quite a bit of hidden value there when things start to transition to producing and get de-risked so yeah so as a reminder yeah I think I've just said that yeah um so the current assets are split between trades and other receivables of 21,566,000 and cash and cash equivalents of 5,850,000. On the other side of the ledger, total liabilities came to 175,332,000 which can be divided into non-current and current liabilities of 105,756,000 and 69,576,000 respectively. Non-current liabilities include borrowings of 42,250,000, 
deferred tax of 40,857,000 and other payables of 22,649,000. Current liabilities comprise largely trade and other payables of 46,299,000 and income tax liabilities of 23,245,000. The trade and, under, and other payables component is predominantly attributable to deferred consideration for the West Musgrave royalty acquisition totaling 36,667,000. These deferred consideration payments are timed to coincide with the royalty payments from Kestrel, as I mentioned, to reduce the amount drawn on the company's revolving credit facility. Um, yeah, so yeah, the current liabilities, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll mention that later. So this facility, so mentioning talking about the revolving credit facility, this facility has a provisional credit limit of 150 million dollars with a maturity date of 24th of February 2025. There is also a 50 million dollar accordion feature should it be required to finance future acquisitions subject to lender consent. Subtracting liabilities from assets gives us the total equity of $503,604,000 compared to 2021 of $357,103,000 which can be broken down into the share into share capital of 6 million seven hundred and sixty one thousand dollars share premium of 169 million two hundred and twelve thousand other reserves of 106 million seven hundred and forty two thousand and retained earnings of 220 million eight hundred eighty nine thousand the share premium and other reserves mostly merger reserve are notably large owing to the use of equity to part fund recent acquisitions So yeah, just uh, as a reminder that the share prices, let me look, um, so yeah, we're looking at a, a market cap of something like $375 million compared to a book value or total equity of 503.604 million dollars so quite a discount there and as we've said a lot of these assets the majority of them are carried at cost and don't incorporate that uh, potential increase in value that we're going to see as things move from development to producing stage or or for the ones that have already done that in the past um, so yeah it's uh, trading at quite a big discount uh, but we'll get into that in the valuation section later so the current ratio of 0 0.39 looks uncomfortably low on paper but is skewed by the deferred consideration which will be transferred to borrowings as the RCF is drawn upon to pay any earnings deficit historically current liabilities have been well covered so we can see here the current ratio which has normally been well above one sometimes going up in you know four five six even over ten in 
in a few years. Oh yeah, so well covered historically. So return on equity, ROE, calculated using net income and average equity, has averaged approximately 8% across the last 21 years. This includes several years of steeply negative losses between 2013 and 2015. Excluding these years, the average has been 12.4%. So yeah, I mean, you can see in the around the peaks, it's been around about 22%. So over, so yeah, over the 20%. And I'd say if you just, yeah, obviously the average there are lower years that bring them bring it down, but in a standard year, it's been quite quite a bit over 10%. Um, just on a, a number of years that have been above that figure. Uh, but yeah, the average is 8% or 12.4% if you exclude the particularly negative years. So debt to equity is comfortably low at 8.4% and were the RCF to be maximally drawn to fund an acquisition, debt to equity would rise to 39.7%. This is still not excessive, but given the current mix of producing such development assets, I think management would seek to pay the debt down as a priority. Cash flows. So net cash generated from operating activities came to 132,495,000 dollars compared to financial year 21 of $55,780,000. Not far off the profit before tax figure of $135,444,000. This was because the large adjustments made to reverse a revaluation gains and subtract income taxes paid were offset by reversals of amortization such depletion and impairments and working capital movements. Net cash used in investing activities came to 54 million and 14,000 compared to 136 million 612,000 in 2021, primarily attributable to the 59 million 600 and sorry 360,000 spent on the purchase of royalty and exploration intangibles, the South 32 royalties. And uh, net cash used in financing activities came to ninety-two million seven hundred and thirty-seven thousand, compared to financial year twenty twenty-one, which was actually seventy-six million six hundred and twenty-seven thousand generated rather than used in. So owing to, and this was owing to the net debt repayments and the dividends. So in 2021, there was a drawdown on the revolving credit facility, which is why the finance activities generated cash flow rather than using it. Um, so in aggregate, operating, investing and financing activities resulted in a $14.256 million decrease in cash cash equivalents during the year, leaving a balance of $5.85 million at year end compared to financial year 21, which was 
$1.992 million. Due to operating cash flows ex excluding the movements in asset prices, they haven't been subject to the same wild swings seen in net income. So I've got a graph here comparing the net income to cash from operations. And you can see yeah, it pretty much follows what revenue is doing rather than having the, it doesn't have any negative negative years like the net income does. The company has paid an increasing dividend over the years though there have been years when they've cut it back a little. So you can see like a graph here of the dividends paid from 2003 to 2022 and they sort of go up pretty steadily a couple of little bits where they a couple of years where they cut back a bit um, but yeah generally the up has been a nice upward trend. So dividend cover has oscillated somewhat but the average of the last 20 years has been 1.9 times. In the near term, we can expect this cover to be significantly higher than the historical average as management has elected to keep the dividend at its current level of 8.5 cents per share. Yeah. Um, let's have a look. I've, got, I've just got a graph here of the dividend cover from 2003 to 2022 as well, for you to have a look at. Let's have a quick sip before we start talking about management. So on the subject of management, before we begin this, I will say that I've been to the, I went to the AGM, uh, would have been last week, I think Wednesday the 10th, I think, something like that. Um, yeah, so just over a, over a week ago. And it was, uh, yeah, and I've got to sort of meet the management in person, speak to them a bit. Um, I shall get a, a real gauge of... Um, of what of their competence on a human level and stuff like that. So pretty happy with everything. Um and I subsequently have had some back and forth with um the CFO, Kevin Flynn, who's been uh, very helpful in clarifying a few of the accounting treatments, um particularly in sort of how they're going to recognise fair value movements in in something like the development royalties and stuff like that. They're currently development stage royalties as they transition to production, how they'll be recognised in the future. And it's largely going to be through sort of narrative discussions and sort of quarterly trading statements rather than uh, it, w it won't ever be a appearing directly in the actual financial accounts themselves. So, um, yeah, it's good to get some sort of clarification on some of that stuff. He's been uh, very generous with his time to, to discuss these things with me. Um, but anyway, yeah, so let's have a look at discussing, give you a bit of a background on the management. So, Mark Bishop LaFleche joined the company in 2014, working in a number of roles, including Chief Investment Officer, before being appointed CEO on 1st of April 2022. Mark has been instrumental in both the Voices Bay and South 32 acquisitions, which together total more than $400 million and are transformational for the company. Prior to joining Ecora, Mark worked at Citigroup in both the metals and mining investment banking and European leveraged finance teams, where he was involved in a variety of M&A transactions in addition to arranging debt and equity financing. He also holds the CFA designation. Kevin Flynn has served as CFO since joining the company in 2020. 
in January 2012, in which time he has negotiated the group's borrowing facilities and structured the financing for all the numerous acquisitions that have been done in that, in that time. Kevin is a chartered accountant and prior to joining Cora, worked in a number of corporate finance roles in the real estate sector, including senior roles in FTSE 100 and FTSE 250 companies. So just to give you a little bit of context on these guys as well, these, I think CEO Mark Bishop LaFleche is something like 38, maybe 39 now, and Kevin Flynn is something like 42, 43. So they're pretty uh, pretty young guys as, um, as things go. And so um, this is, yeah, their careers are probably going to have been something like 10 or so years before they came to Ikora. Um, so just to give that that bit of extra context and that's kind of reflected in as we'll get onto their executive conversation later it's sort of at the below the median level with the anticipation that it's going to increase fairly rapidly up to the median level as they sort of prove themselves in in the roles as i think they've been doing well so far uh, with the acquisitions and so on they've been able to source and uh and complete So uh, supporting the executive team are an experienced board led by the chairman, Patrick Meyer, who has held the role since May 2017. Patrick is well qualified, having had a 30 plus year career in investment banking, specializing in the mining sector. His experience includes a number of senior roles at RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, including leading the investment banking activities of RBC Capital Markets in Europe and Asia, and before that, RBC's activities in the metals and mining sector in Europe, Africa, and Asia. The other board members are J.E. Rutherford, C. Conyard, R.G. Dacom, V. Shine, and until recently, R.H. Stan, who has just resigned from his post after serving on the board since 2014. All have extensive experience across the finance and uh, mining sectors and yeah just a couple of notes here like um, I think I spoke a bit to Graham Dacom at the uh, at the AGM that was a good conversation he was um, he's the very experienced accountant I think it was I think it was EY he's been a partner at or maybe I might be misremembering PwC, but been a partner for them with them for something like twenty six years, um, and he's the chair of the audit committee. And I was having some. I asked a question in the meeting about um, the accounting for the the two different mergers being different. So the Foises Bay acquisition, there was a an issue of shares to the public, and subs uh, the shares. Pre, rather than be going into share premium, um, it was instead held in a separate uh, merger reserve account in the in the equity statement, and um, I was questioning that because with the second the South Thirty Two acquisition, where the equity was directly given to South Thirty Two, it was instead held in the share premium. The excess above the the share the nominal sort of share capital amount. So um, 
yeah i just asked for a bit of clarification on why those two were different and yeah it was um had a good convers that good conversation following it um yeah he seems very competent with it i mean they're all very i mean you look into the actual they give you details on all of them they've, they've got long storied histories across uh investment banking and, and, and particularly focuses on mining and stuff like that i think um Robert Stan, uh, who's been on the board for quite a long time, but has just resigned, had a lot of mining experience. Uh, Ms. Ms. Conyard, um, Christine, Christine Conyard, yeah, she uh, has a lot of extensive experience in the mining industry, having worked all, gone all over, worked for um, various ones. I think Polymetal came up in the meeting uh, because of a potential. Received a bit of a Russian connection there, but um, yeah, it's just interesting. She's she had a lot of a strong experience for everything. Same with uh, James Rutherford and Varda Shine, the other director, um, who's Varda Shine is focusing more on the. Uh, she's the chair of the remuneration committee, so she's um, she's the one who did all the executive compensation sort of write-up stuff. So that was um, that was quite good work in the uh, in the accounts they're quite clear laid out to pick out all that kind of stuff makes a lot of sense but we'll go through all of that stuff in a bit yeah just overall pretty competent um, very experienced board really over the, the decades of experience each so yeah very um, very good considering the size of the company to have all these experienced board members on on board uh, so overall, I think Ecora's management have proved themselves capable capital allocators. In recent years, their efforts have been focused on maintaining and now growing the, in the earning potential of the assets portfolio. Shareholders will feel these benefits, sorry, will feel the benefits of these efforts in future years when the company is able to sustainably increase its dividend per share, either through directly increasing the total payout or through targeted share repurchases. Um, right, so let's have a look at, just briefly go through the executive compensation. So the CEO and CFO receive a base salary of £417,325, respectively. These are in the lower middle quartile for a company of this size and are expected to grow above inflation to reach the median level as the executives develop in their roles. That's what I was mentioning about um, their, their ages. So, um, so in addition to base salary, there are they are eligible to receive an annual bonus of up to one hundred percent of salary, subject to meeting certain performance targets. These are split as follows: thirty to forty percent, dependent on the growth, on dependent on growth through the acquisition of new royalties and streams; twenty-five percent based on portfolio contribution adjusted earnings per share and price to NAV and 15% for meeting certain ESG objectives and finally 20 to 30% for achieving other individually tailored objectives the threshold performance earns 25% of the maximum available with the exception of growth targets for which the threshold is set at 0% 
a bonus earned above the threshold increases on a straight line basis up to the maximum of 100%. Any bonus earned above 50% is awarded as shares subject to a minimum holding period. For the nine months from Mark's appointment to the year end, he was awarded a bonus of £225,180, representing 83.4% of the potential award available. For the full 12 months, Kevin was awarded a bonus of £225,150, representing 79% of the potential award available. <laughs> Quite funny how close those two figures are. Um, the pair are also eligible to receive shares through a long-term incentive program, LTIP, with an ma annual maximum opportunity of 150% of salary, subject to meeting performance targets. Performance is assessed using three equal weighted measures, total shareholder return versus the EMIX, EMIX, global mining index, portfolio contribution, and adjusted earnings per share. The 2023 LTIP requires the following targets to be achieved in 2025. Threshold total shareholder return is the index return and the maximum is index plus 7%. Threshold portfolio contribution is $54 million and the maximum is $77 million. And threshold adjusted earnings per share is 10.5 cents and the maximum is 15.5 cents. Compared to the levels of portfolio contribution and adjusted earnings per share achieved in 2022, these targets don't seem so stretching. But once you factor in Kestrel moving out of Ecora's royalty area and the new royalty acquisitions having not yet started production, they appear more challenging. As with the bonus, threshold performance grants 25% of the maximum award available, increasing on a straight line basis to 100% for achieving the stretch targets. Both executives are required to hold two times their base salary in shares for the duration of their employment and the two-year period immediately following termination. So finally, let's have a look at the valuation. So when valuing a chorus royalty and streaming assets, there is considerable a considerable amount of uncertainty around factors such as commodity prices, production levels, and in the case of development stage projects, the mine actually coming online. I feel that management has done a good job of incorporating all these factors into the expected future cash flows and the discount rates used to bring them back to present value, as outlined in the notes to the accounts. On this basis, I think that asset values held on the balance, group's balance sheet are a conservative estimate of the true value of the assets and not one on which I could improve. Therefore, I'll make the simple comparison between the company's market capitalization, $375 million, and the stated book value, $504 million, to get a price to book or price to nav ratio of 0.74, representing a pretty healthy discount. Remember that this book value figure excludes much of the upside that would come from above average commodity prices or mine life extensions. There's also the potential for considerable NAV growth, though not seen on the balance sheet, as the development stage assets begin producing and start to de-risk. Exposure to copper, nickel and cobalt is another source of hidden value. 
these metals are expected to see very significant price increases should the energy transition occur in the coming years. You could be looking at excess returns like those seen from Kestrel in 2021 and 2022 for multi-year periods if things really pan out, providing plenty of upside in terms of cash flow now from here. It isn't much of a stretch to see the portfolio providing revenues greater than $100 million in the medium term, which on the current market cap would translate to a very healthy earnings yield, even after subtracting operating expenses and taxes. And while you wait, there's a well-covered dividend currently paying greater than 5%, 5.7% or 5.9% actually. All right, so that's, uh, yeah, that's the, the write-up. Um, you can find it on on firmreturns.com. Um, yep, yeah. this is uh, yeah. I've, I think this is the first one I've released since uh, adding the the new member, the new US premium tiers to my membership. So if if you I now so you still get all of these. You can sign up over on the. You can sign up to get the free newsletter, which is what this is part of. So these long, in-depth write-ups, which take a long, a lot of hours to write and research and so on. Um, I'll I'll still be putting these out for free. Um, you can sign up to receive those over on firmreturns.com. Uh, there's also some premium tiers for anybody who's interested in getting a little bit extra. So three tiers. The firm tier, which is the lowest level one, which is five pounds a month or fifty pounds for the whole year, and that gives you access to portfolio updates. So, as I, in this case, Ecora is a company I own, uh, but going forward, future write-ups I do are going to be new companies that I'm not necessarily holding. And if you want to get updates on, you actually want to see what I own in entirety and get updates when I buy and sell things and, and I'll probably have, um, I will have sort of quarterly updates on the overall portfolio and what my thinking of all the different positions is. If you want all that kind of stuff, you, do, you can sign up to the firm tier. And then in addition to that, I've also got some high level tiers, which are largely uh, just for the the uh, the big time supporters, of the, uh, if you really want to help out my writing help cover some recoup some of the costs of going to the AGMs and uh, and the paying for the platform and, and all and, and then just time and so on I've got then some a firmer tier so play on the uh, on the word firm of course which is 10 pounds a month and or 100 pounds for the year and with that tier you get all the benefits you know you get all the portfolio updates not anything more in terms of content uh, above the firm tier, but you also get the ability to vote on what the future write-ups will be, as in the uh, the free write-ups, what the, the next company I will study is. So I'll I'll put together a list of you know something like three to five names for you to pick between, and then you will get to select. You get to have a vote on what they'll be, and then for the really really true supporters, and uh, I'm not expect anybody to sign up to this, but if anybody really wants to help out help out my work then there's a 20 pounds a month tier which is the firmest tier haha um or 200 pounds for the whole year and with this tier you get the basically everything that the other tiers have but you have a double vote so you can have and you definitely get in any kind of decisions 
for going forward about extra features and stuff like that and whatever kind of stuff you'll you'll have the first say in all that kind of stuff and I'll be directly consulting you to get your input on any changes to what I'm going to be doing going forward with the with firm returns with the the right the newsletter and the uh, the wider platform so yeah go over um if you've got any questions anything I'm you can go over to the site you can so if you sign up to the uh just the free newsletter you can you can leave comments on the post if you're interested to do that or you can send me an email and you can see my email in the contact section i'm also on twitter i've got a, a linkedin page now for firm return so if you if you're on linkedin and you want to you want to check out and get the get updates from there i'm also going to be putting stuff on there as well and you can connect to me and you can you can follow the firm returns company page um yeah i think that's that's pretty much it and uh yeah thanks a lot i will uh see you all in the next issue